Welcome to The Effective Lawyer, a podcast for ambitious attorneys who want to improve their practice. My name is Jack Zinda, and I'll be your host. I'm Jack Zinda, and I'm here with my law partner, Joe Caputo and two of our top trial lawyers, Neil Solomon and Chrissy Hagen, as well as our brand manager, Kelsey Balsey. Today, we're going to talk about one of the most important topics for a trial lawyer, and especially for attorneys new to the practice of personal injury law, and that's dealing with expert witnesses. This can be a very treacherous area where if you make a mistake, it can really devastate your case and really hurt your pocketbook. Uh, Hey, guys, how are you all doing today? Doing well, ready to get out of the heat. What about you guys? Doing well, Joe. Doing well. Good to see everyone. Yeah, it's great to see everyone. I'm up in Colorado, so I'm one step ahead of y'all. Although it was 103 here uh, last week, so a little cooler today. It's following you. So there's so much to cover when it comes to working with experts. So let's dive into this topic. So the first question, I guess, is, when should you absolutely hire an expert witness? You know, that, that's a great question, Kelsey. And I think before we jump into that, you know, I think maybe we can talk about the different types of experts that you might encounter in a case and then what stages it may make sense to, to engage those. So one of the types of cases we work a lot are on our trucking cases. And typically you'll have The two types of expert witnesses you're going to run into are liability witnesses, expert witnesses, and damages expert witnesses. So why don't we just start talking about the trucking context, and we can just talk about the types of liability experts we may use, and when's the right time to engage those. Joe, I know you and I've worked on a lot of trucking cases together. Um, Let's talk about when we typically like to get an expert involved in those cases and, and who we're going to hire. Yeah, that's a good question. We've worked on quite a few. You know, uh, the time to hire the liability expert in those cases is right away, right? If I'm a defense attorney, knowing what we know on the other side of these cases, and there's a plaintiff's firm that is not getting an inspection done with an expert, I know that either they don't know what they're doing or they don't believe in the case, right? And so it... It's crucial to make sure that not only are you preserving evidence, but you want to make sure that your liability arguments are sound. You want to find out if there's anything wrong with the tractor or the trailer. You want to make sure that these drivers aren't over their hours if they apply. And you need to get that information sooner rather than later. So what we're typically looking for is a reconstruction expert that can not only inspect the vehicles, but download the black box, get all of the data at the scene and recreate the crash. And then simultaneously, you know, in a lot of cases, we may use a fleet management expert, you know, especially with trucking companies that have hundreds or even thousands of units. So we're not only focused on the crash itself, but really the hiring, the training, and the supervision causes of actions. And and that's really where that fleet management 
or safety expert can come into play and, and really drive the value of the case? You know, why so early on in especially a, a case, whether it's a trucking or another catastrophic injury case, do you think it matters to bring in an expert that early? You know, Neil, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so in any type of case like this, um, you have to secure the evidence as soon as possible. And so um, you're going to want to get out to the scene, make sure that any evidence that's there is getting documented, photographs taken, measurements taken, uh, 3D scans, whatever else you may need for that area. Um, but even more so for the, the truck, they may be trying to fix it or uh, remedy a lot of the problems that may be there afterwards. And so that's where getting a letter out as soon as possible, instructing them not to destroy or alter any evidence and preserve it for you and getting inspections set up uh, and potentially filing a, a temporary restraining order to ensure that the defendant isn't getting rid of any of that evidence. Um, everything related to the truck, all the documents related to the files related to it, uh, as well as the cell phone. Uh, and so a lot of times we'll send a specific letter related to cell phones to make sure that the drivers aren't throwing away their phones as soon as this thing happens, because there's a lot of uh, good information you can find on there. It's also important to start early so you can consult with experts on what to ask for in discovery, what types of requests to send, who would be ideal to start deposing, you know, what order to take depositions, who you want to talk to in particular, what information you want to get from each person. So it's helpful to talk to experts so you know what type of info to gather on that end as well. Something I, I've seen twice in the last month, Jack, I don't know if I've talked to you about this yet. These defense folks are getting pretty creative. So you have these tractor trailer crashes and we're trying to inspect them. And, you know, within two weeks of the crash happening, the truck, you know, the, the tractor's in Mississippi, but the trailer is in California. And it, it's kind of a problem for us when we're trying to figure out what to do because that can be double the cost and double the expense. And, and we need to make decisions pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, and I, my typical rule on those things are the more the defense is trying to hide the evidence, the better it is for our case. And I tend not to believe in coincidences, especially if it involves a serious injury. You know, is there a chance that that was accidental? Yes. But it could also be that there's some critical piece of evidence that you're missing uh, that's there. And, you know, a couple of points I just want to reiterate. I think that spoliation notice is really critical at the front of the case. And for those of you that don't practice trucking cases or catastrophic injury cases a lot, the spoliation letter basically puts them on notice that there is evidence that is important to the case that if they destroyed, it could hurt uh, a jury's ability to evaluate the evidence, which then could have an impact at trial. And you can get what's called a spoliation instruction. A lot of jurisdictions have strong spoliation law. Some have weak spoliation law. In Texas, ours is um, semi-weak. And so we go the next level of filing what Neil was referring to as a temporary restraining order, which actually gets an order from a judge to preserve the evidence. So we talked about a few of the trucking type of experts that you're, you're dealing with, you know, fleet management, accident reconstructionist. Let's talk somewhat about when you engage them. How do you first find the type of expert you want to work with? And then how do you go about vetting those uh, experts? I think various listservs are great places to start so you can get feedback from other attorneys. 
that have used that particular person before. I know whenever I've reached out to other attorneys in our practice area, they're always more than willing to talk about their experiences with that particular expert, you know, pros, cons, um, any issues they ran into, whether they recommend them or not. Um, so that can be super helpful. And there's so many different listservs you can get on, you know, local, national ones, um, different bar associations have different listservs. So that can be super helpful. In addition to that, you're not, not only local trial attorneys, people that you and your firm have worked with before, you know, whether if, if you're an AAJ or, or ATAA, those trucking listservs can be helpful. But there are also companies, I know we've gotten creative and have used some companies that specialize in directing us towards experts in a particular field. Now, oftentimes we're using those experts when it's, you know, it's not a, a reconstruction expert in a trucking case. It's maybe a more nuanced case or a, a sub sub specialty, but between trial lawyer references and listservs and, and third-party vendors that do this work there, Google as well. Right. But there are tons of different ways to, get out in front and uh, and see who all may be able to help you in these cases. Yeah. The one, one other idea I'd add to that, if you already don't know of the person is, you know, go look on your Westlaw or Lexus account and look up cases and results or even uh, verdict search and find cases that had good results. And you can look through and they'll announce who the, the actual experts were on those cases. And that's a great way to just look yourself uh, nationwide and find out who's gotten a good result and provided opinions and help somebody out. Yeah, and, and I would be persistent. A lot of times finding the right expert is really important and it's not going to be the same one for every case. Geography can matter a lot because that can have a major impact on the expense. How busy they are, are they going to be available for deposition or trial later on? Um, and when you first reach out to the expert, you know, they're probably going to run a conflict check. And if it's a good expert and they work on both sides of the V, um, sometimes they're conflicted out, which can be a positive sign, which means that the defense is taking the case very seriously, which means that expert was actually hired on that case. Um, and sometimes it's a race to who can get to the expert first if there's someone really important to, to a particular type of case that you're looking at. So, you know, you've looked for the expert, you've looked on your listservs, you looked on Westlaw. Um, you've checked, you've asked around verdict search. Let's say you've narrowed it to a couple experts that you like. What are the things that you all look for to help vet those experts? Sure, I'll jump in. So the the first thing is is you may be checking those same resources to see what other attorneys have said about them. Um, there's a lot of resources through Westlaw or Lexis to to search on. Um, you know, if they've had any issues, you can do your own social media search to see what's out there and see what you can find. You'll be amazed what you can find out there. Just post it out there for the world. Um, and then also you may even ask them, uh, a lot of times experts will give you references of other attorneys that they work with. And so um, really talking through the issues with them, I think the biggest thing is just actually getting them on the phone and talking through the issues. And you can see if they're asking, you know, import the important questions that you think matter most for your case. No, I, I think Neil hit the, the nail on the head, right? These people are oftentimes going to be taking all of the facts and, and spoon feeding the jury uh, your liability argument. So do they make a good witness? Are they believable? And then look at their track record. Look at their CV, read deposition transcripts, 
from Westlaw or Trialsmith that are available, and then call the attorneys for whichever side of the case they were on that retained these experts and find out what they thought. Get as many different data points as you can and and make sure that uh, when you're spending this money that you can do it confidently. Zinda Law Group is a plaintiff's personal injury law firm made up of over 30 lawyers that handle catastrophic personal injury and wrongful death cases throughout the United States. We regularly co-counsel and joint venture with firms across the country. Over the last several years, we have paid millions of dollars in joint venture co-counsel fees to the law firms we work with. If you are a law firm or attorney and have a catastrophic personal injury or wrongful death case you would like to joint venture or work with Zinda Law Group on, please reach out to us at 800-863-5312 or email us at info at zdfirm.com and we can set up a time to discuss your case. Yeah, and I think you, you know, some other things you might want to look at are ask them the tough questions. Uh, have you ever been struck before? That's an uncomfortable question to ask someone. Um it's kind of like, have you ever been divorced? It's like an uncomfortable thing to ask, but you need to ask it because you don't want to find out when they're being deposed that they've been struck five, six, seven times. Just because an expert's been struck doesn't mean they're not necessarily good at their job. It could have been just a one-off case, but you need to know that because you have to protect your client. I'd also ask them about speaking engagements, places that they've spoken before, because if they turn out to be um, speaking on things that put them outside of what you're going to have them opine about, that could be problematic for the case. Uh, do a Google search. See if there's bad stuff that comes up. Now, some experts, especially in the medical context, may not be practicing medicine anymore because they got in trouble with the medical board, so they look to go be a testifying expert. So you want to be careful to make sure you're vetting those different credentials. And we have a, a really detailed questionnaire that we have the attorneys go through to ask those questions because most of the time you're talking about several thousand dollars if not tens of thousands of dollars when you engage this expert on the front end um so are we found our great expert we vetted them we feel good about them let's talk about you know what's usually the elephant in the room which is price now how do you deal with managing cost expectations and i will tell you i learned this lesson the hard way, Joe and I worked on a couple of cases together where one expert in particular, I felt like every week we got another invoice for $5,000. It was like thinking about file, thinking about thinking about file, opened the file, you know, typed my name on the file. Uh, and I learned the hard way you have to really control costs because then get out, out of control fast. So what are some of the tactics that, uh, that we use to help control costs and really keep those in line? Jack, don't forget about the invoice we got for the dreamt of the case uh, <laughs> situation as, as well. I, there are a couple ways that you can protect yourself. You know, on the front end, price your expert out and price them out not through report or not through deposition, but through trial, because you don't want to get in a situation where you took the depositions, you have the reports. And oh no, it looks like the case didn't resolve. You need to try it and you're out of money for the case. You, you spent too much already. So make sure that you can take this particular expert from the point of hiring to trial before you get them on board. And then you're kind of walking a fine line because uh, until recently, at least in Texas and every state's different, different correspondence back and forth 
may or may not be discoverable. One worry that we used to have is if it appeared like we were limiting the amount of time or the documentation that the expert was allowed to have, right? Because if you're on the other side, you're like, whoa, this attorney didn't give you all the information or told you that you could only, you know, look at it once for an hour with the opposite end of the spectrum being, you know, you get a bill for $100,000 and it should have been 10. And so a lot of times what we're doing is we're sending out letters to the experts and we're asking them, you know, whatever we've budgeted for the case, we'll give them a, an amount and we'll say, if you go over this amount working on the case, before you continue any work, please give us a call. And that I found that that's kind of a good middle ground so that we're not limiting the expert in any way, shape or form during cross-examination, but we're not stumbling upon a bill that's way in excess of what we had budgeted out of kind of thin air. What about you, Neil? I'm sure you have a couple of tactics as well and, and probably deal with the same things we're talking about. Yeah, so I like to have a pretty frank conversation with the expert on the front end and asking for a proposed budget. And so I think that's just really important for your case. And you have to obviously weigh it to your client's injuries and, and what you think about the case itself and the posture of it all. So number one, I think uh, talking with them and as long as you're open and honest with the expert about your expectations on the case, generally it'll work out every once in a while. I think we've all had that experience with that expert who went rogue and, charged you through the roof and you weren't really expecting it. Uh, and I think that happens to you once and then you learn your lesson and you make sure to, to stay on top of it a little better. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I used just, to be in... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Chrissy. No, it's okay. I was going to say, I've learned to be super mindful about what documents I send an expert. And that's another thing that I get into in that initial call is what specific documents do you need in order to, you know, come up with your, in order to get us your opinion, um, draft your report so that we're, we're not sending things that are unnecessary that they're going to charge us for reviewing, but ultimately not need and not have any bearing on what the report's going to say. What do you think is important about trying to pick what to send the expert? Like, how do you go about deciding that? Cause I could see it being a double-edged sword. One, if you send them stuff that doesn't matter, they're going to review it and it's going to cost money and their time and they may go down some rabbit trails. At the same time, the easiest thing to cross-examine an expert on is like, well, you didn't look at this document. So do you have some thoughts on how you go about deciding what to send them and what not to? Yeah, I think that sometimes comes up during subsequent phone calls with the expert. You know, if it's a liability expert, obviously not sending them any records or anything like that. They wouldn't need anything related to damages. And then just keeping them up to date on the status of the case. So, you know, initially they're going to request the crash report. That might be all you have once you get the case and once you retain the expert. And then um, you'll do the scene inspection, invest the truck. This is a trucking expert, for example. And then as you get deeper into discovery, you're probably going to want to set a follow-up call to let them know any additional information you've gathered or received from the other side. And if that's something they might need in forming their opinion on the case. So I think, you know, leaving it up to the expert, keeping them informed about what's been disclosed so they can say that they're aware of that and made that determination on whether it's something they need to review as part of their expert opinion. I'm so sick and tired of all these defense attorneys sending orthopedic doctors and neurologists 
the crash report and property damage photographs, right? It's ridiculous. Why? You know, they, they do it so that they can, you know, on direct examination, say that they had more knowledge about the case than, uh, than the treating doctors or, or are retained experts. But, uh, you know, I don't know about you all. I, I've never taken my property damage photographs to the doctor with me for the purpose of of helping them diagnose my injuries, right? So like it's, it's a bunch of hogwash, but there's also, you know, there's a difference between sending the documents to your expert and making sure they're focused in on reviewing those documents, right? And so if, if you're kind of 50-50 and you're not sure whether or not to send it or not send it, send it, but maybe follow up with the expert and say, hey, you know, I, I want you to really focus your time and energy because we have limited time and energy on this stuff. But I want to give you the opportunity to to see it all. And that way you don't get hit with the bill. They're not looking at stupid stuff. But you also don't have the cross-examination technique where they show you 20 documents that their guy saw and, and your gal didn't. Two, two questions. One, is hogwash a legal term of art? Because the way you use it was just brilliant. I love, I love how you interjected that in. You win the five bucks. Uh, number two, you know, I think that's some really great points. I guess this isn't a question, it's more of a point. Um, I think trying to talk to your expert about what matters and staying engaged with them, you know, because there's two really important times, especially if it's liability. It's at the beginning and it's before the report is due. And I think when you're sending them a, a lot of stuff, depositions, discovery, I like to talk to them and explain, okay, here's what I think would be the important takeaway from this deposition. Here's what I think is the important takeaway from this piece of discovery. That way they are, they are reviewing it with that in mind. And it's not like a needle in a haystack. Um, because if you just send them, you know, eight depositions, they will review all eight depositions uh, and charge you for reviewing all eight of those which may not be the end of the world, but it may not be what you want them to focus on with the limited amount of money and time that you've got. Uh, what about dealing with consulting versus testifying experts? I remember when I was a young attorney, that was a really tricky area to figure out. Like, when are you consulting? When are you testifying? How does that affect the case? So what are some examples where you all used a consulting expert and maybe they never became a testifying or maybe they switched over to testifying later? Sure. So I'll jump in. I think that um, really in any case, I guess it depends first off on what state you're in and your specific rules. But, um, you know, a lot of the time, if you retain somebody um, as a consulting expert to start, um, then you're able to have them take a look at all the information and they're just not providing any opinions. And so, for example, that accident recon or reconstruction expert can go out look at everything at the scene, and maybe they provide you an opinion that's not particularly good for your case. And so you don't want them to come and testify as part of your case in chief when you're, when you're giving your expert designations. Uh, and we're the ones that have them do first. And so if there's some reason that we don't want to use them, then we just keep them as a, as a retained, excuse me, as a consulting expert, and we don't have to disclose them as somebody. Um, now, if they have a good opinion and we say, well, we're going to want to use them to testify in court, then we move them over, have them draft a report, um, and disclose them with their opinions when the time comes. And so it's, it's really just a way to get their opinions and you can always decide not to uh, use them if you need to or don't want to. 
No, I think, I think you're exactly right. You know, on the damages side, where I've used consulting experts a lot is on cross-examining opposing experts, right? Because uh, in a damages situation, you know, let's say we don't have a lot of retained experts for damage or the retained experts we do have aren't opining uh, in the way that the defense experts are. And so if I have a, a neuropsychologist, instead of retaining my own or trying to get on the phone with the treating doctor whose you know, those conversations are, are not privileged, I may just spend an hour or two consulting with the neuropsych expert, sending the report or the disclosures over to that consulting expert and have me walk through the report. What are some good ways to cross-examine these folks? What do they have right? What do they have wrong? What do you know about this neuropsych? Uh, what questions do I, what more you know, information do I need that they didn't necessarily disclose in these reports or disclosures that I need to follow up on? And sometimes that gives you more bang for your buck because you're, you're really getting the lay of the land on the expert's report without having to hire your own expert to, to combat it that you're retaining and, and disclosing. Yeah, I know a lot of times we've even used them to evaluate if we want to take a case or not, especially if you're dealing with some interesting premises or construction cases, which we've run into. And uh, we had one in particular where um, a piece of uh, a piece of debris fell on our client's head and injured him very, very badly. And it was really confusing about what happened and he didn't know and we couldn't find any witnesses. So we engaged an expert in uh, OSHA regulations and construction liability pretty much like the first week of the case just to kind of help us figure out what should we be looking for and do we have a liability case here. And there's been a lot of times where on the liability front, they'll help us realize maybe there's not a case. You know, maybe we're not going to survive summary judgment on uh, that front. A lot of the experts will definitely want to talk to you about your case and let you know whether or not you have something. And most of them are staying busy enough to where if you don't have something, they'll let you know, hoping that them being honest will come back to them the next time. So I think it's a great resource. And a lot of time you don't even necessarily have to, to pay for their time to start out. I think you can also use consulting experts if there's a very specific issue in your case that you're worried about the other side bringing up, but it's not such a big deal that, that maybe it's not something that even gets addressed. And so if that is something that the defense discloses, you'll have that person um, at your hands for a rebuttal. Let's talk a little bit about um, impeaching the other side's experts. What are some... Well, let's start off with just the idea of like, what is your objective when you take the deposition of an opposing, uh, the opposing party's expert? So let's talk about, you know, kind of what your objectives are and then how you go about achieving those and, and the steps to do that. Uh, Joe, let's start with you. Yeah, I, I think it depends on the situation and the type of expert and what we think of, of their disclosure and report. But ultimately, a few things come to mind. You're trying to, one, potentially strike or limit their testimony, right? So you're talking about Daubert challenges uh, or limiting their testimony if, if they kind of have a wide ranging opinion and, and you think that you can get them honed in on a particular area. We also wanna find out just what their opinions are, right? A lot of states have 
pretty general disclosure requirements. And so you, you may not get a report with the designation. And this is your one time to figure out what opinions do you have? What are the basis of the bases of, of those opinions? And what credentials do you have that allow you to uh, come to that opinion? And then third, maybe we want the defense attorney to know how this is going to go in trial. And that's a decision that we have to make sometimes in the moment, but sometimes ahead of time. We may have some really good impeachment evidence. We have to decide, do we want to hold on to that? Because that's definitely less effective the second time in trial. Or is it so good that we just can't help ourselves? Which is is sometimes, you know, uh, the decision just kind of depending on the case. But I I would think through long and hard if you have good impeachment evidence, do we want to utilize this to have them see how it's going to go and, and also increase the settlement value? Or does that not make sense? And let's utilize this information when they're on the witness stand to trial. Yeah, you definitely want to attack their credibility and really get across to the jury that this is someone who testifies the exact same way in every single case. I remember before I took my first expert deposition, one of the tactics that Joe and I discussed in preparing for that one, it was a billing expert. And he said, go through her report. You know, we know this is so boilerplate and ask her to cross out everything that is incorrect. Cause there was just so, so many things in there that were incorrect. You know, I think she had the date wrong. She put like head CT instead of neck CT. And so it was actually really funny cause I went through the report and I said, you know, you here you have that the, you know, brain MRI should have cost $2,000. Well, she had an MRI on her low back, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And I was like, okay, can you take this red pen and cross that out, please? And she said, oh, yes, thank you, thank you. And she kept (laughs) thanking me. And it got to be just so comical. It was like, did you even read this report? Or is this just literally the one you do in every case? And then she ended up, you know, striking through half of her report by the end. That's a great exhibit. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Okay, settled. I think that's awesome. And that's, that's the number one goal, right? You want to make their expert look like a clown. And so the fact that they have giving wrong opinions, they don't know what they're talking about, they're biased, they're hired to do this. They see the same thing every single time. Um, and each expert's different and some are going to be more credible than others, but that's the ultimate goal. And when you do something like that and hold up their report with half of it covered in red ink, it just shows how much they're really putting into it and the efforts that the defense is going into to try to hurt your innocent client. So, no, you're, you're right. I, I had uh, three or four experts in one case, all with the uh, a methodology that I, I was getting them to call by their own last name because no one else uses it. And <laughs> so for, for four straight depositions in this case, I was getting them to effectively call it the, the Caputo methodology. Never seen it in a book, a textbook, never learned it. No one knows of it. No one uses it. It's just their own. And and they started referring to it as as their own methodology as well. And and that stuff is not only fun, but it's great for the motion to strike. Yeah, that's. I think that expert witnesses cross-examining them is why we went to law school, or at least a big part of it. It's just so much fun, especially when you're working on cases you believe in. I think this is also really important when you're selecting your experts 
is that we try to be very careful to select experts that are going to give honest, credible, supportable opinions, which means they've usually worked for the defense as well. Um, so you want to be careful about hiring an expert that only does one side of the V because you may have some credibility issues. And also I look at our job as trawlers is to bring out the truth of the case. So to really successfully attack an imposing party's expert, you have to believe that they're not credible. And if that's the case, you're going to be able to figure out why they're not credible. And really, this is where you need to put your time and research and effort. You know, read prior depositions that they have conducted. Talk to friends that they have worked with. Read the papers that they have handled. What Joe and I were working on a case um, recently where an expert witness was testifying that the type of testing that our client got was not credible or valid. And it turns out they had that same type of facility in the hospital they worked at. So basically, they're saying this hospital is ripping people off in their own report, which is insane. Um, and so there's some, a lot of fun you can have with that. And I think that's where you want to put your energy and effort uh, in that research stage. All right. So um, now that we're sort of wrapping this up, you know, does anyone have any additional pieces of advice uh, that they would give to new attorneys uh, working with expert witnesses uh, for the first time? Yeah, I have one recommendation. It's it's not as broad and and uh, and sweeping as as advice I typically give, but the read and sign component when you're retaining an expert, you have two options when they take the deposition. You can have them wave signature, or you can have them read and sign. If you have them read and sign, that's going to be an expensive endeavor. So have them waive their signature unless you've been sitting defending that deposition and realize that there's some corrections that need to be made. And, and you're going to save a, a couple hours of that expert's time. That is a good tip. I like that. I would say, especially in cases where you're hiring multiple liability experts, make sure your experts don't contradict each other. So for example, we had a case, a trucking case, where we hired a human factors expert and an accident recon. And that's why, again, it was really important to talk to them about what their opinions were, because you wanted to make sure they were on the same page, you know, even if it just comes down to how soon the truck driver saw the pedestrian, it was a truck versus pedestrian crash. You want to make sure that one's not saying, you know, 2.5 seconds and one's saying two seconds, because that will throw off all the opinions in the case. So just be very mindful of that. Yeah, I think that my, my tip would be, um, use your experts uh, for how you set up your discovery plan so that you can make sure that you're getting the information you need and what to ask for. And same thing with setting up your depositions. And so it's not just to get their own opinions, but to help you figure out what you need to get from the other side. You know, and I would just add just research, 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 you know, both your experts and the opposing parties experts and really only hire people that you believe they're giving honest, credible opinions. Uh, and the second uh, piece of advice is don't put up with the defense's hogwash. Good callback. Good callback. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to integrate that in every conversation I have the rest of the month. I even wrote it down in my journal. Jack made a very funny joke today. <laughs> Gold stars for me. Well, this has been really great, everyone. I appreciate uh, taking the time to chat with us today. Uh, and thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Effective Lawyer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate it five stars and leave us a review. To get notified about new episodes that are upcoming or have been released, go to zdfirm.com slash podcast to sign up for our mailing list. 